This is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And what we thought the future would be was a future of greater law enforcement accountability in police-involved shootings by having on-duty officers wear body cameras, which would chronicle all interactions with the public they are sworn to serve and protect. Cops wearing cameras, it was thought, would lead to a record of what happens when the police and public intermix. In so doing, those who are responsible can be held accountable for actions or reactions outside the rule of law. With such technology, justice could finally be served and we could determine what really happens in police-involved shootings. We would no longer have to depend on the word of a police officer who makes the ultimate sacrifice for our safety to uphold the law against the word of someone who the police and the press immediately label as a suspect. It only made sense that body cams could bring about more justice, but that seems to be the only thing body cameras on police ever did. That is, make logical sense. Because what it has not done is lead to the kind of transparency that advocates and supporters of body cams had hoped. The kind of transparency that would hold whoever is responsible in a police-involved shooting accountable. Instead, body cams are used more to defend police in shootings, not because they have revealed that officers are rarely in the wrong in shootings, but because the police control the footage and refuse to make it accessible to outside investigators, even family members of the victims, or citizen review boards, before time runs out and it's too late to discipline offending officers. And even when cops are found responsible, they're rarely held accountable as police commissioners have the power to dismiss any and all charges, even if those charges have been brought about by internal police investigations, which did find wrongdoing. Sure, body cams can work. The problem is, so far, they're not working in the way they were intended. Our next guest here on This Is Hell is journalist Eric Umansky, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his ProPublica investigation that includes additional reporting by another past guest on our show, Umar Farouk. The article we'll be discussing is titled, How Police Have Undermined the Promise of Body Cameras. Hundreds of millions in taxpayer dollars have been spent on what was sold as a revolution in transparency and accountability. Instead, police departments routinely refuse to release footage even when officers kill. Eric recently posted the follow-up article, NYPD will stop withholding body camera footage of police shootings from civilian investigators, which is very good news. In May, ProPublica also ran Eric's story, video showed an officer trying to stop his partner from killing a man. Now we know police investigators never even asked about the footage. Eric is an editor at large at ProPublica, where he has overseen two Pulitzer Prize winning projects, most recently a series he edited on New York Police Department abuse of nuisance abatement laws, won the Pulitzer Gold Medal for Public Service. Eric oversaw much of ProPublica's Trump administration coverage, including the Trump Inc. podcast with WNYC, which won a DuPont Award. More recently, he was uh, reported with he has reported with his colleagues on police accountability in New York City. The work has won the John Jay College 
Harry Frank Guggenheim Award for Excellence in Criminal Justice Reporting and the Al Nakula Award for Police Reporting. It has also been credited with helping spur reforms. So congratulations to Eric. Eric has been with ProPublica since it started in 2008, a year that Eric appeared twice here on This Is Hell. Yes, Eric was on This Is Hell in the past, the very distant past, back in 2008, 16 years ago, when we spoke with him about his Columbia Journalism Review story, Lost Over Iran, How the Press Let the White House Craft the Narrative About Tehran's Nukes. He was on earlier that year, in 2008, when we talked with him about a Mother Jones article he had posted, Department of Pre-Crime, looking up Americans for thinking bad thoughts, sorry, locking up Americans for thinking bad thoughts, catching terrorists by encouraging terrorist acts, sounds like sci-fi, well, welcome to the Bush administration's strategic over-inclusiveness trap. Before joining ProPublica, Eric wrote a column for Slate. He has also written for New York Times, Washington Post, many others. He's also a co-founder of Document Cloud, a digital service used to store PDF files in the cloud and to access them remotely, which you can find at documentcloud.org. Follow Eric on X at Eric Uman. That's Eric U-M-A-N. Producing is Rebecca Reidenauer. Becca, how was your freezing cold weekend? It was a freezing cold birthday (laughs) weekend. And all my friends were brave and kind enough to show up at my house. No kidding. In, in negative degree weather. That's amazing. It was. So for your birthday, you didn't have to go out? No, I stayed in. Exactly. That's amazing. And they came to me. They didn't have to do any, they didn't have to bring any other gift other than themselves. That is a huge exactly. gift. Wow. How many people came over? If more than five people came over, I'm shocked. I had 10. It was a wow. And Daphne was there with uh, the babe. Oh, and awesome. And that was great. Yeah. Former producer Daphne Augustin. And Will, how was your very, very, very cold weekend? It was uh, very, very cold. I spent about half of it in Michigan and half of it in my apartment. Where about in Michigan? Uh, south of Grand Rapids. So uh, was it uh, just as bad over there, worse because uh, of lake effect snow? Yeah, it was about the same. Uh, we missed the worst of the snow dump, I guess. Uh, within a few hours mm-hmm. after leaving, they got about 10 inches. So, Yeah, that's what I heard from a lot of people I talked to in Michigan, that they were getting a lot more snow than we were getting because we live closer to Lake Michigan. But at the same time, we were getting much colder temperatures. It was pretty Yeah, pretty, it's pretty cold out here. Brutal. For me, last week sucked. It began with some kind of cold virus thing that was so awful I couldn't do the show. Next day, we talked with Jeffrey Wilson about his graphic biography of Detroit eviction defenders called We Live Here, which was great. Then a guest rescheduled at the last minute for the next day, which was followed by me getting ill again, far more violently ill. But I recovered just enough to join Becca here in studio, ending the week by recording both the Patreon podcast, which we will tell you more about after our talk with Eric, and the intros and outros for our Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, which featured another interview from 2008, a talk with uh, Black Panther Larry Pinckney, who was on the show to talk about uh, President or talk about Barack Obama being elected president, something that Larry was not too excited about. And that's what it started getting very, very cold outside. According to the app I use for hyper local weather, it got down to 13 below in our neighborhood. And with winds nearly 20 miles an hour, that put wind chills near or actually over 30 below. So while we had heat throughout the worst of the sub-zero weather, the heat in my building could not compete with the cold outside and our thermostat dropped from 70 
to 54 in about two and a half hours, which is no big deal compared to what the people are going through who now live in several tents in the park outside my back window, despite the fact that there are empty buildings and housing units throughout the neighborhood. Well, that's a perfect reason why the question from hell should be, like Patreon subscriber Tom H. asked me during last week's Patreon podcast, what the hell? Rebecca, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for listeners, which is a rollover of last week's question from hell because I was only able to get over here once last week. All right. This comes from our Facebook page. Uh, Thanks again to Adam A. Welcome to the Hellholes question. Adam's suggestion from our rollover question is, what flashy cable news name will you give our next forever war? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Twitter and Facebook after our talk with Eric on the unfulfilled promise of police body cameras. Person with our favorite answer, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us on x at thisishellradio. You can post it on our Patreon page or in our Discord community. Or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorf and the moment of truth. Becca, what is Jeff talking about this week on the show? Well, Jeff gets a jump on spring cleaning in his memory shack. He tells me that his memory shack is filthy. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And before Becca shares this week's cure, we are doing it on Tuesday this week instead of Monday, which is our normal day for the hangover cure, because the hangover cure is for the traditional first day back at work after a far too much fun weekend. And as you can stay in bed on MLK Junior Day, you likely didn't need a hangover cure until now. So Becca, what is this week's hangover cure? This week's hangover cure is magnesium, a cure we have shared in the past, but it now comes with a better explanation. The dreaded Daily Mail website ran a story on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day with the headline, Doctor Reveals the 579 Hangover Cure That Actually Works. The headline also included the name of the chain drugstore where you can purchase the 579 cure, but we won't, we won't because we have much higher journalistic standards than that rag, the Daily Mail. No, the doctor in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day Daily Mail headline cited for endorsing this cure is not Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) It's Dr. Petty Miradamadi, a San Diego-based natural medicine expert, someone that the Daily Mail believes is an expert because he posted his hangover cure advice on that very reputable source, TikTok. Dr. Miramandi explains that magnesium is an electrolyte substance with electrical charges when dissolved in water, which help to maintain the balance of fluids. The majority of the dreaded hangover symptoms, such as headache, exhaustion, and nausea, are caused by severe dehydration. The Daily Mail adds, without saying if Dr. Miramandi has been paid by by a magnesium supplement company or not, for sharing his advice, but the doctor touts magnesium for its muscle-relaxing properties, which he says is also helpful after an alcohol-heavy evening. Dr. Miramadi is quoted saying, alcohol causes muscle tension and cramps, which can disrupt sleep for a lot of people. And alcohol is a diuretic, which causes your body to lose water. Another benefit is magnesium's sleep-boosting effect, as it is calming. 
The Daily Mail concludes with, Finally, the doctor says the mineral can assist the liver in metabolizing alcohol, accelerating at which it is expelled from the body. In other words, magnesium makes you pee. That's this week's hangover cure, magnesium. And it's time for the cure because it calms you down and makes you pee. (laughs) (laughs) I just love how it it says uh, it helps water leave your body. It accelerates the rate at which water is expelled from your body. Just say urinate and get on with it coming up why police body cameras are not what they are cracked up to be and how it's not the camera's fault but the cops becca shares more of your answers to our most recent question from hell we will tell you what we did on last week's patreon podcast exclusively for patreon patrons at patreon.com slash this is hell We'll also tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's show and jeff dorchin will be delivering another moment of truth coming up later on this week Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is hell. And a dissenting opinion a few years ago would have been opposition to cops wearing body cameras. I mean, sure, some cops were against it, as were their supporters, but of all the police reforms considered in the wake of racialized police shootings and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2015, body cameras seemed like the one that could happen. And with both police and city cooperation, they did. But what advocates did not expect was that the police would have complete control over the body cameras and their footage. Here to help guide us through the battle over police body cam footage, manipulation, and secrecy, returning to This Is Hell. Journalist Eric Umansky wrote the ProPublica investigation with past guest on our show, Umar Farouk, which is titled How Police Have Undermined the Promise of Body Cameras. You can find uh, out more about Eric by going to X, following him on X at Eric Uman, that's Eric E R I C U M A N. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Eric. Did you get my flowers over the last fifteen years? I've been sending on a regular basis. I did. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I knew that you would you would like succulents. Uh, so, uh, real quick, you start off your article by talking about well, what became the first shooting that was ever recorded and used in uh, trying to determine accountability. You write that Miguel Richards, who was 31, grew up in Jamaica and had moved to New York about a year earlier after coming to the United States through a work-study program. His father's friend gave him a job doing office work, and he entered a Uh, rented a room in the Bronx, but he started to struggle, becoming reclusive, skipping days of work. His mother, with whom he was particularly close, pleaded with him to return to Jamaica. His parents knew he had never been violent, had never been arrested, and had never had any issues. What details they managed to gather came from the Bronx district attorney. Richard's landlord, who hadn't seen him in weeks, asked the police to check up on him, which was a typical thing to happen during a welfare check. The officers Mm. who responded found Richard standing still in his own bedroom, holding a small folding knife. Fifteen minutes later, they shot him. Richard's death marked a historic turning point. It was the first time a killing by officers was recorded by a body camera in New York. The new program was announced just months before as heralding a new era of accountability. So I know this is a big question, and this is what a lot of your writing has to do with, but in the police shooting of Miguel Richards, the first police shooting ever caught on camera following the launch of the police camera program, was there accountability? Were the police officers either held responsible for the shooting or did the cameras vindicate them? 
So um, the cameras did not vindicate them, and uh, they, the officers, were not held responsible uh, for the shooting. Um, what happened was the police, NYPD, um, uh, came out uh, soon afterward and um, basically said that these officers um, had uh, conducted themselves as they should. The police commissioner um, suggested that um, uh, the officer's conduct was exemplary. Um, and the NYPD released some footage, um, but they really kind of shaped the narrative around uh, the footage. Um, and you know, they, they said the officers had, had done what they uh, had acted appropriately, um, and they hadn't released all the footage. Um, and what we found out is that when you really get a kind of fuller picture um, in looking at both the kind of full footage and the NYPD's own investigation, um, the officer's conduct was was really problematic. Um, in this instance, the um, investigator, internal investigators' own conclusions were that the officers um, should be punished, but the police commissioner um, had had just ignored it. So how they, they put together, the New York Police Department, they put together this compilation video of the raw mm-hmm. footage that they had uh, acquired, and they put it together in showing a video that uh, they claimed in, not only vindicated the officer involved, but as the police chief, James O'Neill, said, uh, their conduct was nothing short of exceptional. How clear did that compilation video make it that the police did respond and act lawfully? Because I'm trying to determine exactly how misleading are these compilation videos that the police put together? So I I think actually what you see in in this case and what you see a lot of the time is is not um, a kind of, you know, outright um, uh, lying. The the compilation um, video that they released actually, um, if, if you sort of understood the specifics, if you understood exact police procedures, um, you would know how problematic their conduct um, was. But the NYPD didn't offer any of that context. Instead, they offered um, uh, the exact opposite um, context. As you said, they they sort of pre-vindicated um, the officers. And... Um, you know, as I said, it wasn't all the footage. And and one of the things that the full footage, which we got, showed um, was the aftermath of the shooting. And sometimes the aftermath of the shooting um, can be um, the most telling. In this instance, uh, the officers recognized that Miguel Richards was still alive um, and um, um and basically ignored him as he was bleeding to death on the on the floor um, for you know for a few minutes. He, the truth is, he probably almost certainly, in fact, would have died anyway. But it is very is viscerally very powerful um, and um, very disturbing. And the NYPD fought um, for uh, well over a year to um, avoid uh, disclosing that video. Now, that would be easy to interpret, the callousness of the police after somebody is being shot. But 
how difficult is it to interpret these videos that they do acquire, that they do record? I mean, you know, I've watched a lot of sporting events on TV, and when they do the slow motion replay, it's very difficult to determine what the actual outcome of a play was. So how difficult is it to actually interpret the videos that uh, maybe a a civilian accountability board would be looking over? Well, so it, you know, it depends on the specific. Um, it depends on the specific video. Um, in um, uh, uh, one of the things that can make it more difficult is when a, um, a police um, department is um, uh, putting um, is using select clips, or as actually, um, I'm just looking at with an, another case. Um, they provide misleading context. So, you know, suggesting a gun is present when is in um, somebody's um, hand when, when it's not. Um, but, you know, so it, so it really all depends on, um, it really all depends on the video, but the sort of key thing is you, you need to have um, uh, unadulterated um, uh, copies of the video for people to see, for experts to see who can, who can and and for the public to see, um, who can um, um, look at it with their own eyes and make their own judgments. There has been a lot of people who have been, you know, standing up for and supporting victims' rights in courtrooms. How much are victims' families' rights protected when it comes to this footage? Do they have the accessibility to the footage of a loved one who has been involved in a police uh, shooting? Yeah, so that's one of the um, um, interesting things, and, and I think for some people upsetting things is um, in in New York City, uh, you've often um, seen the NYPD invoke the privacy of the person shot um, to um, as a um, reason not to disclose footage. So in the case of Miguel Richards, um, you know when a um, uh, when a lawyers, um, uh, public interest lawyers tried to um, uh, get copies of the footage, they were told, well, you, you can't have it because um, uh, disclosing it could be an invasion of privacy. Um, but actually, Miguel Richard's own family had said, we want it released, and they had never been contacted. Um, and uh, you see that in other cases too, um, quite frequently actually, where a family wants um, disclosure of uh, footage, and um, uh, and the police department, you know, still um, fights it. So um, that's very much an issue. There are some very few places, but but some um, that now make it a practice to show a family footage before. Um, uh, before its release. Can we have police accountability without violating either the officers or the civilians' privacy? Or is that just a distraction by the police to come up with another excuse not to release video? I, I think you can have legitimate you know, privacy concerns. I mean, for example, um, if somebody is, uh, if there's, you know, footage um, in a family's home, and there are minors in, involved. Um, you know, there there are just just to take one example, there are legitimate um, uh, privacy concerns. Um, 
but uh, at the same time, you know, typically the way that you can deal with that these days is uh, you can reject, you know, you can, in other words, um, blur out the, um, you know, identifying, um, uh, you know, the heads of, um, of whoever you might not want to be identified uh, in it. There's software to do such things. Um, That shouldn't be a, um, that, that, that shouldn't be an obstacle um, toward transparency. I think you can absolutely have transparency while uh, being um, you know, cognizant of and, and being respectful of, um, of privacy concerns. The other concern that people have is not only police control over the video footage, but the fact that the police officer may just not turn on their body camera. Is yeah. there police body cam technology that does not allow either the police turning off the camera or uh, allow the police to manipulate the footage? So, so there is actually technology that will automatically turn it on in certain instances. If, for example, if an officer takes out um, their gun or takes out their taser, it can be automatically activated. Um, so, I, I, you know, my my understanding of it, and I'm not a technical expert in this stuff, but my understanding of it is, yeah, that there is technology su- such that there's really no reason why your body-worn camera um, shouldn't be on for incidents um, uh you know that um, that merit them being on, um, and um, uh, and sorry. The the other part of your question was remind me. Sorry, I missed my button. Uh, the other part of my question was just that: uh, Do they have the ability to also make certain that the police do not interfere with the footage that is being shown oh. to the public? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean that you you um, you rarely see. I, I, you know, it's it's. Um, Sometimes you see you've seen a number of times of instances of um, you know uh, cameras being ter- sort of strategically turned on, right? So that only kind of capture part of a scene. There was a a, a case, um, I think it was in Baltimore a number of years ago, where um, you know the so the camera is on and you hear stop resisting, stop resisting, stop resisting, but a surveillance camera had actually caught um, beforehand and they had actually already subdued this person and just decided to beat him um, and were, were essentially acting in terms of uh, stop resisting. So, you know, you can see that type of um, thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's um, a sort of higher level uh, messing around if someone's going to kind of get inside uh, the footage and, and edit it. Um, that you, you know, I've, um, I've honestly not heard instances of that. Uh, you write that in every city, the police ostensibly report to mayors and other elected officials, but in practice, they have been given wide latitude to run their departments as they wish and to police and protect themselves. This is like, you know, back in November of 2022, I think it was, we had a conversation with historian Austin McCoy, and he talked to, uh, to us about this what he called the unassailable relationship between city government, local government, and the police department. Do police have the power to say no to government oversight? Is the lack of oversight a result of government acquiescence to police power or a sign of the strength of the police as an armed force? Is this an outcome of political acquiescence or physical intimidation? Yeah, so so I, I, I don't... I mean, I don't think it's physical intimid, 
data. And I, I think it's a part of a, of a long history um, in the United States where um, uh, pol- police were, um, you know, politicians n- knew that if you get on the wrong side of the police, you risk having what's referred to as the blue flu. Um, and that's officers essentially declining, you know, uh, stopping doing their work. And if officers stop doing their work, what you're risking is a rise in crime or or even even if there isn't a rise in crime, a, um, a rising fear of that by citizens. Um, and, you know, citizens feeling safe is is a kind of very basic um, uh, demand. And um, so so you have um, politicians, city halls who are very uh, reticent to step, you know, to to get on the wrong side of um, of uh, police, uh, police forces. You know, that's, I think, the basic dynamic of it. As you were just saying about blue blue flu, how it can lead to people, the public, having fears of uh, lack of safety, uh, feelings of a lack of safety, just general fear. Uh, so you write that departments across the country have routinely delayed releasing uh, this video footage, body camera footage, releasing only partial or redacted video or refused to release it at all. They have frequently failed to discipline or fire officers when body cameras document abuse and have kept footage from the agencies charged with investigating police misconduct. So has the purchase of the cameras been good for police public relations, if not police accountability, has it led to uh, people having better feelings about the police because they believe that their actions are now being recorded? I don't know that it's that it's you know that it's actually resulted in people having better feelings about the police because you can actually risk um, the opposite happening, which is uh, and you've seen this in some places, which is that um, you know once you know officers are supposed to be recording. If there's an incident of, um, you know, let's say a, a police shooting or, or, or something else where um, it's potential police mis- misconduct, residents will have the expectation of footage being released. And if it isn't, or if it isn't done in a timely manner, um, what you can have is actually not increased uh, trust, but actually you, you can have the opposite, which is increased distrust, um, because uh, people know that uh, uh, the police have it, and they want to know why the police aren't aren't disclosing it. Um, so, so the sort of dis, you know the technology, um, uh, um, it, it, you know, the technology can um, uh, become a, a fuel for distrust if if it's, you know, handled with, uh, frankly, a kind of knee-jerk secrecy. Is enforcement of the law possible with complete transparency? Because there seem to be either police officers, union members, or just supporters of the police department who would suggest that it is not possible, that a complete transparency would lead to nobody wanting to be a police officer. Does the public demand the police to be a contradiction, a force that both justly enforces the law but one that needs to be, quote-unquote, tough on crime when necessary. Can uh, the police continue to police with complete transparency, and is that what we really want? Don't we want to have this 
propaganda-infused police force that's tough when they need to be. So, so, I, so I don't think that, um, first of all, I don't think that there has to be um, total transparency. You know, no one's, no one's, none of the experts I've spoke with um, are calling for um, live feeds of, you know, cameras, um, you know, at all times. Um, instead, what it is, is when there, you know, is a shooting or another critical uh, incident or an allegation of, of uh, misconduct, um, then the public gets to gets to see. Um, so, so that's one thing. But also, the, the sort of question of um, how does one? What, what you're really asking about, I, I think, speaks speaks to this sort of deeper issue of how does one um, um, get, become a sort of safe community and a safer community? And and I don't think that um, you. You know, I think one way to think about that is um, is that you need to have trust between police and the larger community in in order for there to be the most effective policing. And why is that? It's not a kind of namby pamby thing. It's because literally on a very practical level, um, police need to hear from community members about whether it's you know this person um, stole my bike, they need to have people who are willing to to cooperate and talk to police, um, or you know there's um, uh, drug dealing going on at my corner. Um, so so that um, uh, that is a that is kind of trust between the community and police is a critical part of um, of of safety and a critical part of, um, of lowering crime. But do those body cameras, do they build that trust or do they reveal that we shouldn't be as trustworthy of the police as we are, as they try to do whatever they can to manipulate and not release footage of police involved shootings? Do, do the body cameras reveal that we should be far more skeptical of police than we are? Well, I mean, uh, you know, honestly, I, I think there's there's a degree to which it depends on your um, community. You know, in the United States, there are someone um, pointed this out to me. There are eighteen thousand different law enforcement agencies in this country, right? So, so and each one, you know, is unhappy in its own special way. Um, and um, so, so I, I, I am um, I don't want to paint a broad brush that all you know of that all police uh, departments are are this way. Or, or that way, um, I, I think that if you had um, uh, cameras, you know, you, um, you do see some places, not that many, um, where footage is being regularly released. And sometimes it results in, frankly, a black eye uh, for the police. But what that does, you know, if you um, uh, have a have a kind of accountability system is that ends up creating pressure for the police to do better. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a immutable that, that um, uh, police, you know, must always um, uh, shade an incident or, you know, try to sort of uh, push their narrative of an incident. And, and I don't think it's um, in- inevitable um, that uh, uh, the, you know, that the footage is going to, show them um, uh, behaving uh, badly. 
You quote Jeff Schlanger, a former New York uh, police deputy commissioner who had an oversight role during the implementation of body-worn cameras and left the department in 2021, who believes that the police have often failed to use the cameras for accountability and that political leaders need to do more. Schlanger tells you mayors, city council members, all locally elected officials should be losing sleep over the lack of meaningful independent oversight of the police. And before I ask my question, I should just again stress something that you were just saying, that the way in which body cameras are implemented or are enforced varies from police force to police force. Uh, but you write a lot about uh, what's going on in the New York Police Department. Did police body cams get implemented in New York City, for instance, because they give the impression, the sense of accountability without necessarily holding police accountable. You describe a scene where Mayor de Blasio is standing next to Police Commissioner O'Neill, very happily informing the public that they are going to be implementing body cams. What Was this implementation a way to both give the appearance of supporting reform and the police, or did policymakers truly believe the process would be completely transparent. Was this cynical politicking or was this hopeful policymaking? You know, so I, I, I spoke to uh, former Mayor de Blasio um, and, and, I, and I think that he, he um, you know, it's always hard to tell what's in somebody's heart, I, I, you know, um, but I, I think he had um, a genuine belief and hope that um, uh, that there would be transparency and accountability as a result of the cameras. Um, and then when I sort of read to him the details on how uh, the NYPD has used the cameras in recent years, um, you know, I, I think he was um, genuinely shocked by that. Um, so, so you know, I, I think that there was a um, there was a there was a hope um, that it would go one way, um, and uh, reality that they were going another. And you know, have, having said that, I don't I don't want to be naive. I think um, the the truth is, um, you know, Mayor De Blasio was under enormous pressure from the police um, during the uh, during much of his tenure, um, and as people told me. Um, he didn't cross them, um, and he chose the NYPD over civilian oversight um, again and again, is what uh, someone told me, and, and I've heard from others as well. We are speaking with award-winning journalist Eric Umansky, who re is returning to This Is Hell to discuss his ProPublica investigation with additional reporting by another past guest on the show, Umar Farouk. The article we will be discussing, or we are discussing, is titled, How Police Have Undermined the Promise of Body Cams. You write of the NYPD's first body cam police shooting, uh, and again, that's the shooting of Miguel Richards. Miguel Richards' uh, parents weren't the only ones who had doubts about the department's claims that the shooting was was unavoidable. The footage the department released stopped right when the police uh, fired, police officers fired at Richards. It didn't include the minutes after the shooting, as you were mentioning earlier, and it didn't include footage from other police units that responded. Then you mentioned Ruth Lowenkron, a disability rights lawyer who specializes in mental health issues, wanted to see it all, see all the video. Working for New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, a legal advocacy nonprofit, she and her colleagues, along with activists, had been pushing the city to 
to find an alternative to using the police as first responders to people in crisis. On her second day on the job, a sergeant shot and killed a 66-year-old woman who had schizophrenia and was holding a baseball bat in her Bronx apartment. The department's own investigators concluded that the sergeant escalated the situation and caused the shooting. I don't know if you can judge this or not, but has one of the biggest lessons from police body cameras been that police are not properly trained to or skilled at dealing with citizens suffering from mental health conditions that can give the appearance of or even lead to violence? And do you think this will lead to the use of body cameras may lead to improved training when it comes to dealing with people with mental health issues? It's interesting that you uh, raised that. I've, I've actually written about a number of such cases. Um, and, um, you know, and I actually think that you're right, which is um, that it, it has shed more light on police shooting people um, uh, in the kind of midst of a mental health crisis. Um, and I think in the big picture, it will... Um, it, it will lead to changes. I think that's will be sort of slow moving. Um, but but you know, Ruth, for example, um, has been advocating for such changes, and, and I think that um, it's likely to gain momentum. You know, as people see uh, uh, kind of um, the Richard shooting and and other similar um, incidents, um, but. You know, I mean, I will also say at the same time, um, the that is not the narrative um, that uh, police often have of uh, uh, of these shootings. You write that President Barack Obama put the police body cameras at the center of his plans to restore trust in policing, but these body cameras, who do they? rebuild or restore trust in policing for restore that trust in whom like black communities and urban areas that had experienced racialized police violence which were at the you know forefront of why we're seeing these kinds of reforms or people who are not of color in the city who may have been losing trust or faith in the police because of those repeated news reports concerning killings of unarmed black civilians by police. Who do you think Barack Obama or these body cameras are trying to restore trust in policing for? Yeah, it's a good question. I I think what he was talking about, he made those comments in the wake of um, the first Black Lives Matters protests in uh, uh, 2014 after the killing of Michael Brown and, and Ferguson. Um, and so I, I think he was talking to the sort of country um, writ large. But but what ended up happening was um, they the the Obama administration um, he gave grants for these cameras. Many cities cities began paying and equipping their officers with these cameras, um, and left them completely in the hands of the police to decide uh, what to release and, and when to release it. Um, and I don't think that that has appreciably uh, uh, increased um, trust. As I said, it, it could even undercut it depending on what the police do with the footage. You point out that in 2018 in Montgomery, Alabama, an officer unleashed his police dog on a burglary suspect without warning, severing the black man's femoral arter- artery and killing him. 
The police in the city have refused to release footage for five years, arguing that it could cause civil unrest and that the officers could face embarrassment. But a lawyer for the man's family, which is suing the city, got a copy of the transcript in the discovery process and entered it into the court record. An officer asked the one who had the dog, according to the document, did you get a bite? The canine officer responded, laughing, sure did. Are they correct that such a release would lead to civil unrest? I mean, I could not care less to, about the about the officer being embarrassed and hope he will be because shame can be a very powerful drug. But is it necessary to risk public civil unrest, possible property damage and violence, potentially deadly violence, even de- deadly violence caused by the police in order to hold the police accountable for their crimes they have committed against citizens? Are our choices civil unrest or unaccountable police force. I mean, I think you're you're not one would not give enough credit to your fellow citizens to say um, we have to withhold this footage because we think you're going to uh, riot. As 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 gruesome as it may be, um, you know, you have um, and and you have an obligation. I I think um, for um, responsive response responsible uh government it that you know the so it strikes me as um as a kind of reach to simply say this is this is gruesome this is really problematic um and therefore um we can't show it to you um you you can't handle it um you know i i i don't think that uh uh Police departments and city governments should be in the business of uh, should be in the business of, uh, of that. You mentioned the disability rights lawyer again, Lowenkron, uh, who kept requesting the Richards uh, footage and kept getting rejected or sent redacted video. In July 2018, she and her colleagues decided to file a lawsuit in state court demanding the full footage. They even got a former police department lawyer, Stuart Parker, to help lit- litigate the, stu- the suit pro bono. The department's uh, various explanations for its de- denials pissed me off, Parker, re- Parker recalls. He retired from the department as an assistant commissioner in 2016 the year before cameras were widely rolled out, but he had been excited by their potential and was frustrated by the department's knee-jerk secrecy. You quote Parker telling you there's a good side to the department, but there's always been a self-serving dark side to it, too. Eric, why so often does that self-serving side so often seem to win out with the police? Are just a few bad apples that poisonous to the entire bushel? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, police departments, and I don't think, you know, police are any worse human beings than anybody uh, else. I think that they have very difficult um, jobs, but that the way that policing uh, works in the United States is um, that there's a lot of secrecy, there's a, there's a lot of deference, and there's little accountability. Um, and when you have that combination of things, um, you, you can, you know, that, that's a kind of breeding ground um, for problematic uh, uh, conduct. It's 
not to say, you know, there are, I think probably actually the majority of police officers are, um, are doing their best to, to do a good job. But when you have those combinations, the real question is what happens when uh, uh, somebody is, um, when an officer is doing something they shouldn't? What happens at that point? You quote Mayor de Blasio countering uh, claims by someone who worked on the civilian board saying that the city always sided with the New York Police Department. That was Nicole Napolitano, who joined the review board as its new director of policy and advocacy in September of 2017. De Blasio countered, saying that I don't agree. The tension between the uh, civilian review board and the NYPD is natural and built in. I decided each issue on the merits and according to my values. The blunter truth is when a progressive, I assume he's talking about himself, challenges the police culture and the police unions and the status quo of American policing, the left is not going to have their back. You're not getting that thank you card and the right will viciously attack. So, Eric, by your estimation, is that an accurate assessment that when someone with political power challenges police power, the left goes quiet when the right's labeling of the politician as anti-cop grows louder. Is that an accurate assessment by de Blasio? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, with somebody like Mayor de Blasio, um, you know, he was frankly not going to, uh, um, let let me put it this way, is that I think that he, um, he, from what I can tell of his record, and I've looked at his record pretty closely over years. Um, the truth is, he he um, did not push uh, the police. So it's possible that what he says was was um, true. I don't think that he's an example of it um, because he he um, um, was I think became quite cautious quite early on about um, holding the the police to account. In the shooting of Miguel Richards, it's really fascinating what happens. And you mentioned how uh, there were many shots fired. The two officers involved, Fleming and Murphy, fired 16 times, hitting Richards seven times, including twice in the chest, rupturing his aorta. The internal investigation investigators asked the officers to explain. Murphy offered, we kind of handle everything on our own. When the investigators asked why the two officers did not broadcast that Richards was an emotional, uh, someone who has a medical or a mental health issue, an emotionally disturbed person with a knife as protocol dictates, Murphy told them he and Fleming had handled people in crisis before, asked why they made the decision to use force. Murphy simply said, we wanted to, like, end it. This would suggest that in the field, whatever police guidelines are not prioritized, uh, you know, and instead what is is past history, uh, experiences that the police have had instead of guidelines and priorities and, you know, it's suggested in policies suggested by the police department, all of a sudden the police culture, if you will, takes over. Is the problem with police reform that it addresses practices and guidelines and not culture within the department? Yeah, you know, I, I spoke to um, uh, a, a another officer um, who, or another policing expert, I should say, who um, has actually had success at helping to change police departments. Um, and he worked, for example, with the New Orleans Police Department. Um, and 
the the way that he he pushed to change the department and it and it very much needed a cultural change um but was indeed with policies actually body worn cameras were an integral part of him he you know made sure that officers were actually using the cameras that they got in, that they would get in trouble uh if they didn't um that uh supervisors were watching footage that they would get in trouble uh if they uh didn't and you know you have your basic system of um carrots and sticks and and accountability like you would in any institution um and and that's how you uh, affect change i mean that's um uh, i agree with you that uh, culture is a big issue um and you know the way that you address it is to r- roll up your sleeves and have um uh policies and procedures where uh, you hold each other accountable You quote Jeff Schlanger again, the former deputy commissioner, saying body worn cameras have not been exploited the way they should be. The way to true reform is through using body cams as an early warning system, as a way to correct small mistakes before they become big mistakes. I mean, when we think about these body cams, we think about when they're just in huge situations, when maybe big mistakes have taken place. Schlanger continues, but there weren't a lot of discussions about it. The NYPD needs to do a lot better. Do body cameras, police body cameras, take a lot more effort than was originally considered by those supporting the body cams in order to watch for minor indiscretions? Does there have to be a lot more surveillance of police than was originally considered or is being applied right now? Does it take a lot more uh, resources and human hours to go through that kind of video footage? You know, that's one of the things that I that I, I looked at is, you know, in, in New York City, for example, um, you have 36,000 police officers, you know, generating um, uh, probably hundreds of thousands of hours of, of tape. And so how can anybody go through it? But but in talking to experts about it, um, they, they pointed out you don't need to watch all of the footage. What you need to really do is be kind of constantly looking at um, at samples. You, can't, you need to be auditing. Um, that's what they did in, in New Orleans, where you have somebody who kind of dips dips in like a ladle, um, you know, into a stream or something. And um, and because once people know that that's happening and happening on a regular basis, then you're going to think twice um, because you know y- you might get uh, uh, busted. In the same way that you know officers are uh, checking for speeding, they're not everywhere. But uh, we're not speeding all the time. You you, you just don't know when you're going to get in trouble or, or not. Um, so, so yes, I think, I think people, I think people underestimated the amount of resources that entails, but not, but not enormously. Um, you know, it is a, it is doable to use these cameras in a, um, in an effective, um, in an effective way. It's just that many departments have chosen, uh, not to. Do you think policing can survive losing their culture's sense of impunity? Um, well, sure. I mean, you, you've had um, a, a lot of um, departments, and there's really a kind of big movement afoot uh, within the world of policing. Um, to So I've heard it referred to as um, constitutional policing. You know, um, um, again, I'll, I'll mention New Orleans, which has made um, uh, big strides over recent years. You know, it was a 
a department known for abuse um, as under a federal consent decree um, because of regular constitutional violations and, and violence against uh, New Orleans residents. Um, and, you know, it's it's far from perfect, but they've but they've done a, a much better job. So, so I don't think um, uh, that abuse and uh, policing are inextricably linked. You're right that the city, meanwhile, paid out at least $121 million in settlements last year for lawsuits alleging misconduct by police officers, the highest total in five years. Again, this is New York City. So why not simply make the individual officers or their union pay off those lawsuits so they have some skin in the game, which is a really awful phrase, but why not put the yeah. uh, police at some fi- personal financial risk instead of allowing the city to bail them out with the, you know municipal bond, municipal bonds that lead to municipal bondholders profiting? Why can't we just hold the police, individual police officers accountable? So, so I, I think some people uh, would advocate uh, for exactly that. Um, I think you know you'd probably run into um, a lot of resistance from um, police unions, pretty much assuredly. Um, and you know, and I don't, I can't. Um, I'm not a legal scholar. I can't tell you the um, you know legal issues uh, around that. But um, but certainly. Um, you know, lots of people have noticed that when the risk isn't borne by either uh, officers or, or actually police departments, um, it, it you know that that um, undermines uh, the impulse for uh, uh, accountability. Yeah. You also write that uh, public disclosure of footage isn't the only path to hold officers in New York accountable for misconduct. For 70 years, the city's Civilian Complaint Review Board, 70 years, had been vested with the responsibility to investigate New Yorkers' allegations against the police. From the start, uh, though, its powers were weak. The agency was actually part of the police department. Its board consisted of three deputy police commissioners. The department fought efforts over the years to make the agency independent in the face of a plan in the mid-1980s to or 1960s, to include civilians on the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the head of the largest police union, then called the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, said, quote, I'm sick and tired of giving in to minority groups with their whims and their gripes and shouting. How much of the antagonism toward oversight and reform is caused by the union? Is the union the rotten apple in the police department? I actually think it goes beyond that. Um, um, I think that, yes, uh, unions have often fought uh, oversight. It's unquestionably the case. Um, and they've fought it, um, you know, across uh, across the country, in police departments across the country. Um, so, so that is certainly true. Um, I, I don't think, though, that unions are the explanation. Um, I think that they're one of the reasons. And again, you have, um, uh, I think it's, I think in some ways it speaks to a, um, a broader culture as we were discussing earlier. Um, and, and the way that these systems are set up, uh, with a lack of, uh, oversight, for example, many of these civilian agencies, um, that, that we've mentioned here while while talking about the story um, are exceedingly um, weak. They don't have funding. They don't have um, 
powers. And and so, you know, it shouldn't be surprising when um, police do what they want in the face of them. One last question for you, Eric. Thank you so much for being back on our show. We have, we are speaking with award-winning journalist Eric Umansky, who has returned to This Is Hell to discuss his ProPublica investigation. That includes additional reporting by another past guest on the show, Umar Farouk. The article we are we have discussed today is titled How Police Have Undermined the Promise of Body Cameras. You can find out more about Eric by going to... Uh, ProPublica and looking at all of his work there, or just following him on X at Eric Uman. That's Eric U-M-A-N. You probably don't remember this because it's been 15 years, but our final question for all each and every one of our guests is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. One of the things that Americans obviously are infatuated with is technological fixes, a technological fix, whether it is with police accountability or climate change. It allows us to not have to change the structures and processes that are in place. We do not have to change anything because the technological fix will lead even forces us into choosing a better solution. Why do you think we desire a technological fix, whether it's police accountability or climate change, but let's focus on police accountability. Why do you think we desire a technological fix more than one that is more cultural, if you will, more societal, more structural? What does it say about us when we want a technological fix to a police accountability and not a societal change? Oh, I, I think it's because this is, first of all, it's a thing I've, I've thought a bunch about, so thank you for asking. Um, and I think that the answer is ultimately that it's easy. It's easy to, or it seems easy to, um, you know, if we can just put this little device on people's uh, chest and, you know, hit a button and it starts recording, or maybe it even starts recording on its own. That's such an easy solution and it's so elegant and you want to, um, uh, believe in a kind of America's can-do spirit. This little invention is gonna is gonna solve our problem. It's it's a kind of deep-seated story uh, uh, for us for us Americans. Whatever our problem is, this little technology is gonna is gonna fix it. Um, and you know, it's almost never the case, um, and it's certainly never the case here. Eric, thank you so much for being on the show again. Uh, we'll have you back on in 2039, so it'll be 15 years again. Uh, no, we'll talk to you very soon. It's always enjoyable to have a conversation with you. This is absolutely fantastic writing. Say hello to Umar for us. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Live from the United States, where law enforcement breaks the law and instead enforces a culture of inequality, racism, corruption, and violence, deadly violence. This is hell. And if during that talk with Eric, you're thinking change even the slightest when it comes to the police and the public's relationship with the cops, your relationship as well as society's relationship with the police, show your appreciation for a completely commercial-free This Is Hell by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. On last week's Patreon podcast, TV news sucks. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it except for the people who watch it who insist their TV news is just fine. It's that one network, you know who, who does such a horrible job, only leading to their audience being misinformed and duped into believing something that is simply not true. And that's the current state of media criticism. Your media sucks. No, yours does. 
That is, even if that's allowed, we've had listeners and guests tell us that we need to be careful engaging in any media criticism because it's a slippery slope to not only losing all faith and trust in journalism, but toward becoming a Trumper, part of the MAGA crowd screaming fake news. But the problem with fake news is that it's just really, really bad media criticism. It's like looking at a piece of art and instead of discussing its merits as well as whatever the viewer may see as the work's inferior aspects and simply dismissing the piece of work by claiming it's not art and moving on. No more discussion. That's just not art. That's what fake news is. No more discussion. It's fake. So last week I talked about why the news sucks and it's not because it's fake. There's a worse reason that it sucks. That nobody in the MAGA crowd would ever admit to. Also on Patreon, we followed up uh, playing our January 2003 interview with Adam Shapiro, who at the time was working with the International Solidarity Movement. ISM was featured prominently here on This Is Held during the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2005. Adam was in Washington, D.C. at the time to attend a peace conference on Israeli-Palestinian solidarity toward peace, because that's been going on since before Israel existed. Nine months before that conversation with Adam, he was holed up with PLO leader Yasser Arafat during a siege by the Israeli military. Adam, Arafat, and other and their colleagues were trapped in the Church of the Nativity, which is built on, built on the site in Bethlehem that is believed to be the birthplace of Jesus Christ, a site many religions view as sacred. But apparently, Christian nationalists here in the United States do not because they were not critical at all of the Israeli military having a siege on the Church of the Nativity. So, following sharing our talk with Adam two weeks ago, last week we played a conversation we had when that siege was actually taking place, a discussion we had with Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People, an organization that he assisted in founding and an organization that assisted the international solidarity activists who were standing with the besieged people at the Church of the Nativity, like Adam and Yasser Arafat. Ghassan is also co-founder of ISM and Rapprochement. All of which means that last week on Patreon, we gave you a far better reason why the news sucks than it being fake. And one week after we played an interview with a Jewish peace activist working for peace, we talked with a, a colleague, a Palestinian, who they were working with in solidarity to end the occupation. Keep in mind, these conversations of solidarity for peace in the Middle East are from over 20 years ago. And it's very likely a lot of people you know had no idea that there was such solidarity for peace going on for a very, very long time. Show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to an, an analysis, or as uh, Veronica used to say on the show, our French-Canadian correspondent, Analysis, uh, analysis like that of Eric Umansky's on police body cameras that you won't hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows you can listen to right now at thisishell.com and doing so without accepting any grants or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so non-profit we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. Show your appreciation for all of that and help us keep This Is Hell online and on air and assist in our efforts to make every show we've ever 
never done, available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. Rebecca, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listeners are responding on Facebook and uh, I don't know, you want to do Twitter too? It's up to you. I don't think there's anything on Twitter anyway, but uh, here, tell us uh, what the question from Hell is and how people are responding on Facebook. All right, and question from Hell from Adam A is, well, uh, is what flashy cable news name will you give our next forever war? And we have one answer on Twitter, and it's it's from Korg. Okay. And it says, guns and butter is a virtual reality. <laughs> Gross. And, and then uh, on, on our Facebook page, it looks like we've read these from last week, but... I don't think we did. Well, maybe, maybe I remember reading the Pissful Solution, oh. and I, I also liked the War Against Hell from Fabio. Oh, that's right, I do remember yeah. the Fabio one. So, did we get to Welcome to the Hellhole? Did we do those? Those I don't believe they were posted on there. Too sorry to say. Oh, uh, really? The question. Yeah, at least we could yeah. not find it. Oh, yeah. it's just probably farther down on the page. Maybe so. All right, we, we dug dug deep, but we didn't. So we'll give you the rest of this week's uh, answer to the question from Hell on later on on this week's show. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us, at thisishellradio. You can post it at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, if you are a subscriber, or in our Discord community, or you can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Becca, one more time, what is this week's moment of, what's Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff gets a jump on spring cleaning in his memory shack. A memory shack. Sounds much, so much better than a she shed, doesn't it? I'd rather, much rather have a memory really shack does. out back. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On January 14th, 1942, the government of Canadian Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, far too many names, in an attempt for Canada to match the United States in terms of being a racist nation, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King ordered that all men of Japanese descent between the ages of 18 and 42, including Canadian citizens born in Canada, were to be forcibly removed from any land within 100 miles of the country's west coast in the province of British Columbia. I guess the Canadian government figured that Canadians of Japanese descent would somehow be part of a secret Japanese plan to either bomb or invade Canada. I don't know why they'd do that. It's an idea that is so absurd it was clearly more about fear and racism than public safety or national security. The move to forcibly remove Japanese Canadians was soon followed by another government order mandating the similar removal of all Japanese Canadians from their area, regardless of age or gender. Remember, it originally was just men between 18 and 42. The removal came at about the same time as a similar order issued in the United States by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt after the December 1941 Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entry into World War II. I guess the Canadian thinking was, 
If the Japanese are willing to do that to Pearl Harbor, who knows what they do to Vancouver? As part of the British Empire, Canada had officially been in the war since 1939, but discrimination against Japanese immigrants had been endemic there long before that. Oh, right, Canadians were already racist toward people of Japanese descent. This just revealed how racist Canadians were, and like Americans, they were really, really racist towards people of Japanese descent. On Prime Minister Mackenzie King's orders, some 23,000 Japanese Canadians were told to pack one suitcase per person, a clear indication that this was about the cruel practice of forcibly expropriating wealth from people of color, aka racial capitalism and white supremacy. And the Japanese Canadians were shipped to camps and shanty towns in the Canadian wilderness where the men were put to work on road gangs, i.e. forced labor. The following year, the families' homes and property were confiscated and sold by the Canadian government to pay for the internment. Unbelievably. I told you it was about racist wealth expropriation, racial capitalism, and white supremacy. And they had to pay for their own internment? That's freaking cruel. After the U.S. nuked Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, Prime Minister Mackenzie King, though he considered the atomic bomb an illegitimate weapon, nonetheless wrote in his diary, quote, Oh, this is a good one. It is fortunate that the use of the bomb should have been upon the Japanese rather than upon the white races of Europe. And even I did not see that white supremacist turn about to happen. The internment of Japanese Canadians did not end until April Fool's Day, 1949. Are you freaking kidding me? Even the U.S. closed their camps in March of 1946, three years earlier. How freaking racist was Canada in the 1940s? The Canadian government offered no apology or compensation until 1988, which was the year that President Ronald Reagan also signed into law legislation that gave compensation to Americans of Japanese descent that were vic victims of government-sponsored theft and wartime detention. As leader of the yeah, Liberal Party, Mackenzie King was Canada's large, I'm sorry, longest serving, largest, Canada's longest serving prime minister with 21 years and five months in office. Today, Mackenzie King's picture is on the Canadian $50 bill. I always wondered why the back of the Canadian $50 bill has this Latin phrase, Felix Usus Bombay and Laponica Potius Quam in Albus Nationibus Europaeus. In English, it's, it is fortunate that the use of the bomb should have been upon the Japanese rather than upon the white races of Europe. To sum up, Canadians were really, really racist in the 1940s, arguably more than their neighbors to the South when it comes to citizens of Japanese descent, which is incredible. And Canada's longest serving prime minister, a white supremacist, he's on their $50 bill. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Becca, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Our next guest will be Christopher Hood, and he will talk about his new book, Killing Detroit, the true story of America's drug attack on black Detroit. 
So it's winter. Uh, it's cold outside. Temperatures, if we are lucky, will be in the teens on Wednesday night. But that's not stopping us from hosting This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet. That's really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 in the evening. Look for me out back by the fire pit enjoying the heat and the brisk, fresh air while drinking a beer and engaging in all sorts of nonsense. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, no matter the weather, no matter the time of year, every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, a neighborhood unlike any other in the city. If you want to see a diverse neighborhood, a gateway to migrants, immigrants, refugees, and newcomers to Chicago of all kinds, bring bringing their many cultures and traditions, leading to America's most diverse communities, according to the U.S. Census, the kind of community that gives the area a unique vibrancy that has sadly been gentrified out of much of the city's north side, you gotta come check out the West Ridge neighborhood. So again, every Wednesday evening at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, Carrie's Lounge in West Ridge neighborhood. Come by and join us for office hours our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think and even if you don't come by on a wednesday just drop by the neighborhood it really is something that is unlike anything else in the city i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing this show is becca reidenauer and shadowing her today is will ippen thank you to both of you bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996 this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>